0: Many indeed are those blessings that we have each been given that have allowed us to gather here this morning. And for all of them, we certainly have already expressed appreciation to our Heavenly Father. And may we continue to feel sufficiently in that way as we proceed throughout the course of the time of our service this morning, as well as any other factors related to our lives this week, that we would be appreciative and grateful to the very God who has so marvelously and wonderfully blessed us. As you have noticed perhaps in the bulletin by way of the announcements concerning the lesson today, you'll notice that the title not only there, but also on the screen to my left, the wall if you will, has to do with a perspective on the assembly. It might be fair to notice that the assembly is itself one of the grandest aspects of the work and livelihood of the church. And sometimes though, some very good questions can be asked about the assembly those times when the church comes together. Let us devote our attention this morning to thinking somewhat about those questions and about the character of the assembly. May we begin it with some of the following introductory thoughts. It certainly is a marvelous and divinely beautiful stroke to consider the marvelous nature of the church of our Lord. You and I perhaps fail for words to describe how thankful we should be for it recognizing it is the body of Christ, and therefore that body which will inherit eternity in heaven, Ephesians 5.23. That body that in fact the precious and sinless blood of Christ purchased, Acts 20.28. That very body which in fact one is able to be redeemed, the very powerful sentiments of 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. To speak about the church, we notice that in the six chapters of the Ephesian letter, Paul devoted six powerful and profound chapters in describing in very intricate and final details the character of the church of our lord as we think about the nature of that church notice it's guided by the bible no authority anywhere to pursue any plan creed or doctrine that is not the very character of the last will and testament of jesus christ the son of god Hebrews 9, 16 and 17. That word which we follow inerrantly and truthfully and with great heed and earnestness is that word that encourages us in all works according to those things approved by heaven. When one considers the activities, the works of the church, certainly one of the most notable would be the assemblies. Those occasions and times when the church comes together as one and proceeds to involve itself in some set of activities, be it worship or some other activity, such as Bible study. What might one say about those assemblies? Questions that might well be asked could well be these. What's the purpose of the assemblies? Does one see within the pages of Holy Writ authorization for the assemblies? On a personal note, must I attend those assemblies? Does the obligation rest with me to choose to be absent when I deem something is more important? Or perhaps if I have no really good reason at all? What about the character of sinfulness? Is it a sin to willfully absent oneself from the services? Those questions are very fair. In openness and in fairness, we can only rely upon the word of God to answer them. Human speculation is pointless. Human opinion on those thoughts is fruitless. As we consider them first, might I suggest the most logical question it would seem to first address is the authorization part. If the God of heaven has not authorized us to meet, then by the very character of our assembly at this very moment, we are engaging in something that is not entirely pleasing to him. First, let us notice the New Testament scriptures. To notice, very interestingly, is there authorization for us to assemble and to meet in the concourse of carrying out? the blessed work of our Heavenly Father. In the second chapter of that fifth book of the New Testament, the book of Acts, we read so interestingly about the fulfillment of prophecies long since passed from that that time. Prophecies that were fulfilled in the establishment of the very church of our Lord. We have noticed that Jesus priorly had said in Matthew 16 that I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Our Savior was alive in the flesh at that point. However, once they nailed him to that old tree, once his life's blood was taken from him as they pierced his gentle side in John nineteen thirty four, we remember that some 50 days later, on that occasion of the Pentecost, that first day of the week, if you will, which it always had to be, We remember that the apostles were therein gathered. The Holy Spirit came upon them and, amazingly, powerfully, miraculously, they began to speak with tongues that they had never learned. Furthermore, Peter boldly and aggressively stood forth and proclaimed the precious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 36, he said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ, in verse 37, "...when they that heard him heard thus, they were pricked in their hearts. They were overcome, at least some of them were, with the fault that they had put to death the very Son of God, the Messiah. And as such, they then cried, "...men and brethren, what shall we do?" Peter, by the character of the inspired nature which he then had, responded, "...repent and be baptized to every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins." Peter thus stated the purpose for the things he had given. They were not to repent and be baptized just to show others the good feelings of their heart. They weren't to repent and be baptized to make an express show of character of the inner nature of their being. It was for the remission of sins, plain and simple. Sins would not be remitted until those acts were finalized and obeyed. About 3,000 of them, we learn in verse 41, heeded those words And were baptized. Those on that occasion became members of the church. We learned that in verse 47 of the same chapter. But isn't it interesting to notice this church had begun in glory. It had begun in wisdom and might and power. But let us notice verse 42. Almost immediately the church assembled. Almost immediately and from the days thereafter the church found as one of the most... Encouraging, powerful, and beautiful works in which it could engage the assembly. Verse 42, we notice, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. To have continued in fellowship and in those other acts specifically related to worship, there was a statement of their assembly, their coming together. Notice later on, one can also notice in verse 46. We see here the same chapter that they met daily and were one accord in the temple. They found it encouraging and exhortational to encourage one another by assembly as they shared a mutual faith and thus aided one another to overcome the difficulties of the world around them. Two chapters later in chapter 4 verse 31 we notice that again there was an assembly of brethren and it's that occasion that the house was shaken when in fact the great power of God was brought upon them and the Holy Spirit and His work was so carefully seen. In verse 42 of chapter 5, remembering there that they met not only in one single location, namely the temple, but from house to house and in so doing they were carrying forth the good news and the glad tidings of the gospel. Those mentions, of course, seem to indicate a degree of assembly. But let us look more deeply and more carefully, for there seems to be an especial notice related to instructions about assembly. In Acts 20, verse 7, this now was several years after the events of Pentecost. It was the third missionary journey, and Paul had come to Troas. Notice, if you would, the language as it's so beautifully presented in that text. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. They were coming together for the express purpose of a spiritual activity to break bread. But isn't it significant they came together? Notice also, on another part of the missionary journeys, this one to be seen in chapter 21, Notice here it was at Tyre that Paul tarried seven days and especially it would seem did so for the purpose of assembling with the brethren on the first day of the week. In Acts 28, we read again at the city of Puteoli on the voyage to Rome. One more time the marvelous apostle tarried seven days allowing him no doubt opportunity to assemble with brethren in that interesting and little known city of the ancient world. To speak about all of those is to say that that's not all the New Testament has to say in authorization of the assembly. So far we have seen that they came together, and notice that Paul did not rebuke them for doing so. Let's look at the Corinthian congregation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we find express note that this church had many problems. There were things that they were doing that was amiss. Things that they were engaged in that they needed to be corrected upon. Notice though in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 18 and 33, Paul especially twice in the same chapter said, When ye come together, they were coming together. They were assembling, they were meeting, they were gathering together for the accomplishment of the express purpose of heaven's will. Notice Paul never rebuked them for coming together. He rebuked them for improperly partaking of the Lord's Supper when they did come together, but not for the fact that they came together. Later on, notice in chapter 14, three times he affirmed that they came together. They were gathered, they were assembled, and in so doing, that was those occasions when the great power of God's spiritual gifts was manifested and seen In light of those passages, it certainly would be fair to say there's abundant scriptural affirmation that you and I not only should assemble, but God's power and might are with those assemblies. When we do so in accordance to His will, we have complete authorization to meet, to gather, to assemble, and to do so in ways that would bring great glory to the very name of God. That does remind us of that text that was read in our hearing just a few moments ago. In verse 25 of Hebrews 10, what was it there that was said about the assembly? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. It stands to reason that command would have made no difference if they were not in the accustomed and habit of assembling. The point is, some there were avoiding it. They were abandoning the assembly. They were told not to do that. They were told to assemble And they were told to exhort one another. And they were told to do so, so much the more as you see the day approaching. Might we comment somewhat briefly in terms of what we've seen so far? We have every scriptural capability of seeing God authorizes our assemblies. He looks down in favor upon those assemblies in which His name is magnified as His word is taught and used and obeyed. But is there not more that might be said about the assemblies? Having thus described the authorization to assemble, what about the nature of those other questions we ask? What's the purpose then of that assembly? Is my attendance a required thing? Let's look more interestingly at some of those questions as well. As we begin that discussion, it would be fair to note from the New Testament that the assembly has at least three dimensions associated with it. That is to say, three perspectives or three approaches that you and I must keep in mind if our presence at those assemblies is to be as it ought to be. Let's look first at what those three dimensions are. First and foremost, the first thing we must keep in mind about the assembly is that its purpose and its principal mission to be carried forth is first and foremost an opportunity to glorify, magnify, and exalt God, His will, and the things that He finds pleasing. That is the major thrust of what the assemblies are for. In fact, consider some passages that lead us to those conclusions. Starting even in Ecclesiastes 12 verse 13, we learn there, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter, fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now certainly that's descriptive of more than simply the times of worship, but when we come together, as wonderful as the fellowship with fellow brothers and sisters may be, as fantastic as the sense of personal edification that we may receive may be, the principal and highest achievement is the lauding of the name of God. In Revelation 5, verse 12, that closing book in all the Bible, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and blessing. Our Savior, Jesus the Lord, is worthy of all that our lips can express in terms of appreciation and thanksgiving. In Matthew 6, verse 10, this is in the midst of that Prayer that our Savior taught His disciples on that occasion Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. It was the prayer of our Savior as He taught His disciples to sufficiently pray that that which is accomplished here would be as completely and thoroughly done as it is done in heaven. When we come together, we may thus powerfully learn the lesson that our assembly is not principally for me, nor is it principally for you. The assemblies are not periods of entertainment. They're not periods in which you and I should seek to proceed therefrom and feel that we have been glorified thereby. If that's our primary thought, we've missed the point. We've missed the whole message of what the assemblies are all about. This would be an appropriate time to recall the definition of the word worship. As it's employed in the New Testament, it means the act of directing reverential acts toward God. They're not directed to me or to you or to any other human in the audience. God is the principal audience in worship. When we come together, our first question should be, is He pleased? Does He find it satisfactory? Does He find it as though it ought to be in accordance to His will, That's our first thought. That's our first goal. But notice there's another dimension to worship. In addition to God, notice that language that's so easily seen in the sense that others are those to whom we also have responsibility and duty. Interestingly, we might note that in addition to God being the audience, in worship and in the case of assemblies, We have the beautiful prerogative of exhorting and encouraging others, other people, to greater and higher faithfulness. Notice at least two texts. First in Ephesians 5.19, Speaking to yourselves. He's already identified those to whom we thus are able to hear audibility. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. When you and I sing, others can hear our singing. It should be such that they are encouraged. They are edified. Colossians 3.16 perhaps amplifies that point. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. There are two verbs that are especially noteworthy, teaching and admonishing. Notice, we teach and admonish each other as we come together in assembly. Thus, we notice that in regard to the assembly, again, I'm not even next on the list. We notice that God was first. We notice that others whom I may encourage and teach are second. We should appreciate what a great obligation that is ours to help each other make it to heaven. We encourage, we exhort, we edify, we push onward, we even rebuke if that's necessary. But notice all those passages lay those responsibilities upon you and me. Those texts remind us that Paul warned those Corinthians in chapters 11 to 14 that in their assemblies, this was the point they were missing. Sometimes we easily read about the spiritual gifts and how that they were abusing them. But have you ever thought with me about that one of the principal abuses was the selfishness? For instance, they were desirous of having the spirit of prophecy, being able to prophesy, and Paul said, why? He said, I'd much rather speak language that others can understand so that they'd be edified, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 15 to 21. May you and I also make note that when we come together, it's a great sense of obligation to encourage and exhort each other Might we notice now we do come to a third dimension. The New Testament does speak that you and I also personally are able to be encouraged and edified in the times of our assembly. There's a somewhat lengthier text relating to this one in particular. I'd invite you to read it with me. Found in Ephesians 4 beginning in verse 11. Let us read through verse 16 of that chapter and listen to Paul's exalted discussion of the dimension of worship and the dimension of the assemblies. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up unto him in all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted, by that every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body into the edifying of itself in love." What a stroke of genius in the divine realm by the working of every part. That's every one of us. May, according to verse 16, redound into the edifying of itself in love. Thus, when we come together in assembly, we magnify God's name. We encourage each other and we also edify ourselves. Worship in the assembly has all three of those dimensions within it, doesn't it? And isn't it beautiful to notice What great good can be accomplished thereby? In addition to those three dimensions seen in the texts that we have noted earlier, might I submit to you that they're also found in that text that Brother Joy read in our hearing just a few moments ago. It is at this point and for the remainder of our lesson this morning that we'll focus our attention on the 10th chapter of Hebrews, verses 22 through 25. At this point, Notice again how that text begins in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The inspired penman begins by using that phrase, let us. It's frequently found in the New Testament, and it is quite often present with all the force of a command. For example, consider these these particular cases. In Galatians five, verse twenty-five, we're told on that occasion to let us have the Spirit of Christ. Does that mean that's optional? Well, of course not. As those desire us of being like Jesus, Second Corinthians four, eleven. As those interested in following our example that leads to heaven, First Peter two, twenty-three and through twenty-five. We should have the Spirit of Christ in us. In Galatians six, verses nine and ten we are there admonished and in fact commanded to do good unto all men, especially unto them that are a household of faith. Notice the occurrence of let us in that text and in the text before. Isn't it fascinating to see in Hebrews 12 verse 1, one more time when let us appears. Wherefore seeing we are compassed about with so great a crowd of witnesses, let us lay aside the sin and the weight which thus so easily beset us, And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Notice that let us occurs all the forcefulness of a command. May we suggest then in verse 22 of Hebrews 10, this begins with a command. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance. We should not then take that as optional. We should desire and look forward to those opportunities to draw near. How are we to draw near? With a true heart? By what mechanism in full assurance of faith? Furthermore, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Isn't that a remarkable manner of referring to those acts that are the very basic nature of obedience? Let's revisit them one by one. Hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. The idea of sprinkling comes forth from the Old Testament when those priests would sprinkle the blood around the altar as well as the other furnishings of the tabernacle. The idea was to purify those pieces of furniture in a symbolic fashion so that the sacrifices could be offered upon them. What does the author here mean? Our hearts sprinkle from an evil conscience. Hearts purified, and that is done in the act of repentance. As one turns from a life of sin, from a life that is given over to opposition to the Heavenly Father, and proceeds to then obey at once the nature of those things commanded. Repentance, a changing of the mind that produces a change in behavior. Then he mentions our bodies washed with pure water. No doubt a reference to baptism in which our bodies are washed, now not as though they're dirty from physical dirt. First Peter 3.21 reminds us that it is related to a spiritual dirtiness. Sin has tarnished and marred us, but as we're baptized, Christ's blood remits, forgives those sins and takes them away. It's thus no wonder that Ananias told Saul, the one later to be known as Paul in Acts 22.16, Arise, why tarriest thou, and be baptized, washing away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Can we not see that in verse number 22, we are speaking about the nature of coming unto God, drawing near unto his word, and in so doing, the obligation moves onward. In verse 23, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Notice that we said draw near to God. That came first. Paying direction and magnitude to God. Now in verse number 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. In other words, in our assemblies, when we draw near, there's opportunity for ourselves to be encouraged and edified. We need to hold fast. That verb, that phrase hold fast means to cling tenaciously to to take hold of and not let go. We understand through the eye of faith that our life here is but temporary. There is an eternal one awaiting. The far greater importance is to be ready to take advantage of and participate in that heavenly abode. And notice he says, let us hold fast. A bit of historical background for the book of Hebrews might be very appropriate at this point. The Hebrews, those to whom this book was written, were Hebrew Christians. That is to say, those who had grown up under a knowledge of the law of Moses, but who had obeyed the gospel and become members of the Lord's body. However, upon so doing, they became dramatically persecuted. All those former friends and associations that they had known turned their backs on them now. These people were suffering mightily because they now were Christians and were not followers of the law of Moses. In that persecution, they were tempted thus to give up Jesus and go back to Moses and again worship under the law of Moses. The Hebrew writer in 13 scintillating chapters points out reason after reason after reason why they ought not do that. You hold fast to Christ, for only in Him will you have eternal salvation. If you go back to Moses, you have nothing. For Jesus was greater than Moses. That old law no longer is the law of God, Hebrews 8.13. That old law has been nailed to the cross, Colossians 2.14. That old law is no longer the law under which men are to serve God. That's the point of this text. Rather than giving up what you have in Jesus and going back to a system that you think is easier, you hold fast. You cling to Jesus. Notice he says, hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. You, instead of going back to your former way, you need to be stronger. Don't waver. What the Lord has promised is certain, steadfast, and true. True. Notice we see then an obligation relating to assembly for ourselves. We too should appreciate a degree of strength that we can obtain from the occasion of those assemblies. But notice what's more. There's yet something else to be noted. Verse number 24. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Notice a direct obligation to others. Consider one another. When we come to the assemblies, we don't first and foremost think of ourselves. We are first anxious to magnify the name of God. And notice, consider one another. That word consider means to stimulate. In essence, it means to provoke. You have upon your mind those thoughts and actions which will encourage their spirituality and it will encourage them to be stronger and more faithful. Faithful. Notice, to provoke unto love and to good works. That thought alone reminds us of that responsibility in worship to be an encouragement to others. Doesn't that directly lead then to verse number 25? For after all, it goes without saying we cannot encourage others if we ourselves are not there. We can't be an encouragement to others in the worship if we ourselves are absent. No wonder verse 25 immediately proceeds in the same grammatical sentence to say, Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is. Some of these Hebrew Christians had already developed the habit of not attending the assemblies. There was too much fearful persecution, perhaps. Too much that they would have to deal with from the knowledge of others of their attendance. So they had begun to absent themselves from those assemblies. In so doing, he said, not forsaking, direct command, do not abandon or leave yourself without of those assemblies, but rather, he says, exhort one another. When you and I willfully absent ourselves from the assembly, we are directly shirking our duty to other people. We're commanded to exhort, to encourage, and to edify them. And what's more, we're shirking our duty to God. For we aren't there where His name is being magnified and where His name is being so highly exalted. It is an interesting thought to consider about the nature of what this text is saying. For, as we consider verse 25, let's now read on into verse 26 not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. The assembly has a tremendous value. Not only is it an opportunity to appreciate the name of our Heavenly Father and to magnify that name, It's an opportunity to encourage one another on the pathway toward heaven. And it's an opportunity to edify ourselves along that same road. If we thus choose to absent ourselves, in the words of verse 26, we've chosen to sin willfully. And in so doing, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. There is one and only one sacrifice for sins. The blood of Christ is the only one. And that blood of Christ is found as we see the doctrine set forth in the New Testament And as we see, the very services which lift up that gospel that proclaims the message of the blood of Jesus. The assemblies of the church then have this three-dimensional character in which God, others, and ourselves all have a role to play in our responsibility. Some of the last comments I've placed upon that particular screen remind us of other instances in the New Testament that indicate that our absence is really more a statement of ourselves than anything else. It states that there's a problem of the heart. If we choose to be absent when we could be there, it's stating that our mind is really somewhere else. There's something else I'd rather be doing, some other place that I would rather be. But given the statement of Matthew six thirty three, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, what does that say about our disposition? Does it not say that there's a priority problem? Does it not say there's a problem in which there's a difficulty of the heart? And we need to remedy that at once. For after all, if we sin willfully, there remaineth no more a sacrifice for sins. Attendance at the assemblies is an important matter. We should anxiously look forward to the times of expressing worship in those assemblies to God. At this point, there's a poem that I'd like to read. Though I'm not certain who the author was, I think it was Brother Gus Nichols, a very well-known gospel preacher from several years past, and this is the poem that he penned. I love the church that Jesus bought, and know that it is right. I go there Sunday morn, but not on Sunday night. I love to sing the songs of God, such worship must be right. I go there Sunday morn, but not on Sunday night. I love to hear the gospel, too. It gives me pure delight. I hear it on Sunday morn, but not on Sunday night. God bless our preacher, too, and give him power and might, and put a sinner in my place on next Sunday night. I'd go through mud, even snow, do anything that's right to be at church on Sunday morn, but not on Sunday night. Yes, all of us must die. I hope I will be doing right. So may I die on Sunday morning and not on Sunday night. Brother Nichols was trying to make a point about the nature of the choices that some may make, in which the Sunday night service or perhaps other assemblies seem to have less of a matter of priority. Of course, as he made those statements, descriptive of some who make the choice to let the Sunday evening or Wednesday evening services be a far greater matter of option, his words do remind us, What if the Lord were to return? at 5.45 this evening and find me at home watching TV or doing some other activity that wasn't needful? Would the Lord be pleased? Would I be found in that case acceptable to enter heaven or would I be sorely regretful that I was not in the services of the church? What about 7.15 on a Wednesday evening? Where was my direction and attention state that I need to be? These are sobering thoughts, aren't they? they do lead us to summarize our lesson this morning in these words. The assemblies of the church have full authorization within the pages of Holy Writ. We can assemble and meet and have full assurance that God not only approves of that, but grants His blessing upon it when they're conducted in a manner according to His will. In addition to that, we've learned some characteristics of that assembly, that when we meet on the first day of the week or at other times, God first should be exalted. Others should be encouraged. We ourselves should be edified. That demands, of course, that we be present. And it requires also that we participate in spirit and in truth. And if those things are lacking, then we ourselves have failed in all that we could have done to make that worship all that it could have been. This morning, as we draw our lesson to its conclusion and ponder the perspective on the assemblies, may we be reminded of the fact that the Lord placed these assemblies in the church for a reason, to aid not only others and ourselves, but to lift among the name of men everywhere the nature of the great goodness of God. What about you and me this morning? May we be reinvigorated as we think about the assemblies, anxiously look forward to the times of their occurrence, and be present and excited about participating therein. Today, if we might be of assistance to anyone in your obedience to the gospel, we need to do that, and you need to have that done. Jesus has commanded that in order to be a member of His body, you need to hear His word, believe Him to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His glorious name, and be baptized. All things are ready to accomplish those latter two steps in just a matter of minutes. If, on the other hand, you have become a Christian but have lost your first love, Those Hebrew Christians were told to get things back in order, hold fast, cling to Christ. Perhaps we need that reminder today. If that's the need in your life and you've committed things publicly, need to have the prayers of others, come back to your first love. There's a room full of brethren who love you. God in heaven loves you. He wants you to come back and be faithful. If we could assist you in either of these ways today, will you not let that be known? All together we stand and while we sing.